Let me begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I was at a church planting conference in the United States not long ago, and I was invited to speak, and I said it's wonderful to be with a group of church planters, and it might interest you to know that uh, I, I serve in a, a church plant, and they looked all excited, and I said, yes, our church was planted 1,300 years ago, <laughs> and they looked disbelieving. 1,300 years, and counting nearer 1,350, as far as we can tell, Nain St. Ebbs, well, matter of interest, here we are as a representative of the, the four congregations at St. Ebbs. If you think you know who St. Ebbs was, put your hand up now. I'm not going to pick on you, don't worry. You can put your hand up confidently. That's not a large number, is it? Put hands up. She, she was, she uh, was an Anglo-Saxon Northumbrian princess. So in the, in the time before the, the kingdom was the United Kingdom, northeast of England, Northumbria, and she was a princess who came to faith in Jesus. Quite why there is a St. Ebbs Church a long way from home. Well, there are guesses. Now's not the time. But it's a long, long history. And for much of that time, we know very little about St. Ebbs because the St. Ebbs area of Oxford, very poor area, the church right on the city wall, and just beyond the city wall, the slums really. And come the 1960s, those slums were pretty much all bulldozed. My knowledge of the history of St. Ebbs is, is pretty murky. You can go back about 200 years, and you know that certainly for the last 200 years, the same gospel's been preached in our building. But at times, the future of our church has been very much in doubt. And there are just one or two in our church, I'm not sure if, you, if I can see you here, who, whose memories go back to the 1960s. And there were genuine questions in the 1960s, can St. Ebbs survive? Here's a parish church, and the whole parish literally bulldozed. At one point, the rector had to fill in a survey as to what proportion of the parish attended the church, and he was able to put almost 100% because virtually the only residential building still standing was the rectory. And all the, the members of the rectory family did go to church. There had been a lot of students at St. Ebbs after the Second World War, but come the 1970s, numbers went significantly down. There'd been lots of families at various times, but those numbers were going down. And there was a, a bit of a downbeat period in the history of St. Ebbs, and people were wondering, can we survive? And then, praise God, for the last few decades, God has been amazingly gracious. At one point, I, I still remember this conversation. A family said, we're, we're leaving St. Ebbs. We love the church, but we want our kids to grow up amongst other children their age. And there are so few children here, we're going somewhere else. Well, they wouldn't say that anymore. And praise God for the children who are being looked after in the next door rooms. Praise God for people of all ages, from just a few weeks old into their 90s. God has been so good to us. God has enabled us to plant in Headington and in Cowley. So there are some, you've been here for, for a long time, and you look and you think, God has been so great. This is amazing. 
And there's just a danger, perhaps especially on a day like this, of complacency. We look around and we think there's so many of us here. There's always almost a danger of presumption that the blessing of previous decades will just continue. And a psalm like this, which focuses on the Lord, should tell us we are very, very small. And the more God gives us a vision of his greatness, the more I hope we'll see we are very, very small. And we could do nothing. And for some, that's the message I hope you'll take home if you're feeling quite confident. Of course, God will bless us. Look at us with our numbers and our ability. There are others, I think, need a different message from this psalm. We're quite a large church, and so it's quite hard to define the mood of the church. Different groups will have different moods. But while some are looking around rejoicing at these vast numbers here today, there are others thinking, well, there were many more three or four years ago, and there were. And COVID's been very, very hard to many of us personally, to the whole world it's been hard. It's been hard for church life, and we've certainly seen a bit of a loss of momentum. We're seeing fewer people converted. At one stage, I can remember periods when one regularly met people. In fact, on one of these occasions, I invited all those who'd been converted in the last three years to put their hands up, and a vast number of hands went up. And now it seems much smaller. The opposition seems to be growing. So whereas it was quite normal to be Christian, now it's very weird to be Christian. And there's a sense that we're pushing away from the mainstream of society and we're, we're rather odd and weird. And the danger is we're downbeat. We're discouraged. Maybe almost defeated. We've forget, forgotten times when God has worked remarkably. We haven't seen someone, seen someone in our personal orbit converted in recent years, and we kind of forget he could ever do that. And the message, if that's you, if that's us, and I think that's true of many, as we look at the Lord, it's not so much we're very small. We always need reminder of that. But what I think we need reminding of is God is very, very great. We might be aware of our own failings and our own weakness and opposition of the world, but God is very, very great, and he can do amazing things. We've been looking at the Psalms, and we're now into book four of the Psalms. We saw books one and two. That was the period where David was on the run. He was nominally the king. He was God's anointed king, and yet he's despised and rejected. And that didn't seem to fit with what Psalm 2 told us, that one day God's king will be exalted over the nations and justice will come and all will be well. It doesn't look like it, books 1 and 2. But if that was bad, book 3, we looked at that last week, well, that's even worse. Because now there's no king. Not simply that the king is on the run, there's just no king. He's been deposed by the Babylonians. Jerusalem, God's city, has been destroyed. The people have been taken into exile. There is no king on the throne. We saw last week Psalm 74, that psalm of lament. Why, Lord? Will you reject us forever? We need those psalms of lament. Now we come to book four. 
And it's a very, very different mood. Book four, we get again and again psalms of praise. Psalm 100 is the most famous psalm possibly in the Psalter. We began with it as we sang at the beginning, our very first song. It begins, shout for joy, all the earth to the Lord. That's the mood of book four. But strikingly, the circumstances are exactly the same. The last psalm at the end of book three is a passionate plea that the Lord would remember his promise to David and raise up his king, his Christ, the Messiah, through whom all things will be put right. Book four, you kind of think, surely he's here somewhere because there's so much celebration, but you get to the last psalm of book four and you get a prayer. God, please bring the exile to an end. No change of circumstances, but a very different mood as we're reminded that there is a great, great God. So you're feeling upbeat, thinking anything's possible in the Christian life. St. Ebbs is going wonderfully well. There's a danger. Look at the Lord and remember how small you are. We can do nothing without him. But I suspect for many of us, the sense that despite lots of encouragements, the Christian life feels harder. Evangelism, we've kind of given up. We're in danger of thinking it's never going to happen again. And God says what he said to that exilic generation. Close to despair, look up and remember the greatness of God. Toby helped us to see that the refrain comes at the end of each little section. It's there at the end of verse 3, he is holy. It's there at the end of verse 5, he is holy. At the end of verse 9, he is holy. This speaks of the otherness of God. He's absolutely unique. And there are three ways in which his holiness is manifest. If holiness is the the generic term for, for God's otherness, well, he's other. He's absolutely unique and holy in the fact that he reigns, in the fact that he's just, in the fact that he's merciful. And the outbox of all of those reminders is the same each time. We should worship him. Verse 3, let them, the nations, praise your great and awesome name. He's holy. Verse 5, exalt the Lord our God. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God. My longing is in these next few minutes, as we're reminded of the greatness of God, we long to worship and praise him more. And yes, believe he can do anything. So very quickly, one by one, verses one to three, the first section, worship the Lord who reigns. And those first few words make the statement very clear. The Lord reigns. It didn't look like it. If you look to Jerusalem, very likely it's a ruin, the temple where God supposedly reigned from. Just a pile of rubble. But the Lord reigns. I was talking to a German friend of mine this week, and he was talking about the coronation. He said it was huge in Germany. Everyone was watching it. And he was watching with his wife and uh, their two sons. And one of the sons, aged five or six, as the crown was placed by the Archbishop of Canterbury on King Charles, said, what's happening there? And my friend said, oh, he's, he's become the king. And this young little boy, aged five or six, said, no. said, yes, he's become the king. No, God is king, he said. God is king. (laughs) 
And of course, he's right. There are human kings, and they come and go and come and go and come and go. And in Judah, there was no king. He'd been deposed. But there's one eternal king, the king of kings and lord of lords, enthroned, verse 1, between the cherubim. Cherubim, that's plural for cherub. A cherub is a little angel, as it were. And there in the Holy of Holies, at the heart of the temple, that'd be the Ark of the Covenant, that's where the Ten Commandments were kept. And above the Ark of the Covenant, there were two angels on either side with their wings covering the Ten Commandments. And that was the throne room of God. That's, as it were, where God reigned from. It's shockingly particular. This is not a general statement that God is in charge. No, this, this particular God, the God who revealed himself to Moses, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord who reigned from his temple. This God, Israel's God, is the creator and Lord of all. Well, do we remember that? And if we did, the implication should be clear. Verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. The nations, in other words, the rest of the world who don't acknowledge the Lord as God. Let them tremble. Well, I reckon you and I often tremble at the nations. Tremble at all those people who seem to be the powers that be in the world. And they're the ones who are saying, what, you believe that there's one God? You believe that there's one way to that one God through Jesus, that he's the Lord? You believe that that God has the right to tell people how to live? How arrogant. And the danger is we we tremble. And in trembling, we keep quiet. And of course, what the world wants us to do is to put our belief in this God into a little corner somewhere. So fine for us to meet in a building like this. Fine for us to shout to one another, Jesus is Lord, as long as we don't do it in the public sphere. Or to those that don't believe that, because that's arrogant. It's offensive. And the danger is we tremble with the world with its assumptions. And so we cower and we move into little corners and we keep quiet and we stop proclaiming this amazing news to the world. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. Verse 2, great is the Lord in Zion. This particular God is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Not at this point encouraging us to praise him. But here's the shocking reality. This God is the creator and Lord of all. And let the whole world praise him. It's that conviction that has sent our forebears over a long time from St. Ebbs to the ends of the earth. When you next look to the front of St. Ebbs, the east window. There's a memorial window there to Thomas Valpy French, a rector of St. Ebbs, just for two very brief years. He'd begun his ministry as a student worker at St. Ebbs in the 1840s. But he was never going to stay in Oxford. Because he had this vision that the God he'd come to know through the Lord Jesus Christ as a young boy was not just his personal God, 
who was the Lord of the universe. And he felt deeply for those in the Muslim world who didn't know this God. And so from a young age, he committed himself to the task of going to what was then northern India, it's now Pakistan, and up into Afghanistan and Persia. It was massively costly. I mean, just think, no, no aeroplane. So when you get on the boat, you're waving goodbye to family and friends. You're not going to see them for months on end if you see them again. Many died. But off he went. And sure enough, he nearly died. No air conditioning. No fridges. This is tough. Many of them died. He almost died. And then he'd come back after a few years exhausted and he'd recover. And it was during one of those recovery periods that he was wrecked to St. Ebbs for a rescuer. That was an easy job. And then he went to be the first bishop of Lahore. Even when he finally came back and retired, he couldn't help thinking of the Muslims in the Persian Gulf. No one was going to reach them. So at the age of 69, instead of relaxing, retired, he went himself. Within a few months, he died. He's still revered there as one of the pioneer missionaries, convinced that Jesus is Lord. I was talking to a friend the other day, just saying, where are the missionaries of the future? Do we have ambitions for Christ individually and together as a country, as, as a church rather? Or are we rather thinking about survival? It's so tough out there. Let's just look to one another and try and keep safe and encourage each other because it's so hard. But don't dare to get out there and say to a friend, actually, we think this is amazing. God is amazing. He's not just a Lord, he's the Lord. It's this conviction that will drive us to share our faith with others and, yes, to go to the ends of the earth. Do we need that challenge and that encouragement? Worship the Lord who reigns. That's verses 1 to 3. Second, worship the Lord who is just. Verse 4, the king is mighty. He loves justice. Isn't that an amazing combination? This generation, there's quite understandably a great suspicion of power. When you meet those who are mighty, there's always the fear that they're going to use their might in ways that will crush others and exalt themselves. And so someone pointed this out to me recently. I think there's a lot of truth in it. 15, 20, 30 years ago when I started out in ministry, many people asked the question, it weren't, Christi- weren't Christians, there'd be some of you who are not Christians. And I'd meet them, maybe they'd come to a Christian meeting or to something like the search, and the big question they had was, is this true? And we had lots of questions about whether this is true or not. I don't get so many questions about that. But so often today, the big question is, is this safe? Because so much power has been abused. And so one of the nervousness that people have who come into Christian faith, once they realize that the claim is that God is the mighty God, the creator and Lord of all, the question is, is this a power that I can trust? Is this safe? Is he safe? 
Or will he diminish and crush me like so many other power figures in the world today have done? And this wonderful truth, the king is mighty, yes. He loves justice. Loves it. You have established equity. See, one of the big questions in the world today is, where does good and evil come from? Is this simply a subjective concept? If there's no God, then you can say, this is what I think is right, and that's what I think is wrong, but you cannot say with authority, no, that is, that is wicked, that is good, because there's no objective good and evil. And yet deep down, I think, we instinctively know there is. Instinctively, we have a moral sense that says, no, some things are just wrong. It's not, not simply that we feel they're wrong, they're just wrong. Why might that be? The Bible says because we've been made in the image of God. And God is the moral one. And equity, goodness, justice is not something that we've invented. It's not a result of evolution. It's inherent in the universe that God has made because it reflects the goodness, the holiness, the perfection, the justice of God. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. Justice established in eternity and then seen in history. Verse 4, in Jacob, you have done what is just and right. And they saw the way in which God dealt with them, the people of Israel. And, and again and again they saw, yes, this God is good. He's just. They saw it in what he did. And we've got much more to go on. Because God came to earth in the person of his son. And he has done justice. Do you feel disillusioned? You've noticed the abuses of power in the world. And very, very sadly, again and again, you've seen abuses of power in church. And perhaps you're wondering, is there anyone I can trust? Well, here in the Lord Jesus is one you can trust. Or have you felt demeaned, patronized, ignored because of your sex, your ethnicity, a disability? Because in some way you don't feel you fit so you feel as if you're in, invisible or insignificant Jesus never looked at anyone like that he noticed people and everyone who met him they were seen by him and there's the lovely encounter of Jesus meeting the woman at the well the Samaritan woman it's midday why was she there at midday when the sun was at its hottest Quite possibly because she knew no one else would be there then. Because here was a woman who'd been married five times. She's now living with another man. And no doubt society tut-tutted, shunned, I suspect. And yet here she meets this man. He's a Jew. She's a, a Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans. And yet rather than turning away and ignoring her, Jesus said, could you give me a drink? And she says, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, and you're asking me for a drink. And John, in his gospel comments, for Jews did not associate with Samaritans. 
That's what Jesus did time and time again. Well, the moment when he's, he's uh, in Jericho and there's a blind beggar, Bartimaeus by name, and he hears the news that Jesus is coming. And so Bartimaeus cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we're told by the gospel writers, they all, shh, 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 shh. This is a beggar, the lowest of the low. Shh. But he shouted all the more, Jesus, son of David. And Jesus immediately stopped, sought him out, said, what do you want? Bartimaeus saying, Rabbi, I want to see. He'd already been seen by Jesus. Martin Luther King once said, in the midst of the civil rights movement where it didn't look as if much was changing, he famously said, the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. Why can we say that? Because God reigns, and the God who reigns is the God who is just. And so verse 5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He's holy. He reigns, he's just. And finally, verses 6 to 9, worship the Lord who is merciful. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. Here's the Lord who reigns, this mighty God. Why on earth should he bother with little people like us? And here is the Lord who is just. How can he associate with people like you and me? Because we've not lived good lives, and he's the perfect one. And yet here is the amazing news. The time of Moses and Aaron, Samuel, prophets and priests of God, they called on the Lord, and he answered them. Same again, verse 8. Lord our God, you answered them. This was another time in the history of Israel when there was no king. It's before the kings were appointed. Samuel was the last judge. And he didn't answer them because Moses and Aaron and Samuel were especially godly. Time and time again, they got it wrong. And certainly the people of Israel at that time got it wrong. But the Lord answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. Isn't that great news for us? In the last year or so, we've done a culture review at St. Debs. And uh, thank you very much for those who got involved and there were things that you were saying things that you found helpful and good things that you find more difficult and a whole variety of different responses and we've found it very helpful and we've heard and some people are saying this is the most welcoming church i've ever been to praise god for that others saying i came and i didn't feel anyone really noticed me we've got more to do and isn't it marvelous t- today such a big variety of different people ages backgrounds all together but we certainly heard from you a longing to mingle more a sense that we were over siloed into different groups we've certainly heard that so we got the feedback but that's just from you and what you see but of course you see very little we see very little but what would god say so he looks at me you're very patient with me but you 
don't see very much. The Lord sees everything. He's infinitely more patient with me and with us. And as he sees us with all our weaknesses, our failings, our pride, our sin, you'd expect him, surely, a God who is absolutely king of the universe, the just God, why wouldn't he just turn away? But he's the God of amazing mercy. You would are Israel a forgiving God, though you punish their misdeeds. But wonderfully for us, the punishment was not received by you and me. The punishment received by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only on the basis of him, the perfect priest, that we can approach God with confidence. And so the message comes again, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Have we got used to this idea that God is a merciful God? Again, what would will drive us in mission to the ends of the earth? What will give us the confidence again to start praying that others would come to know Jesus? Perhaps you've lost that confidence. You don't even believe it would ever happen. What will give us the confidence to actually stand up and say, no, I do believe those things. And Jesus is wonderful. Yes, it would be a sense that he reigns. It would be a sense that he's just. But perhaps above all, it would be a sense that he's merciful. I think one of the downsides is we've got bigger. We've, we've kind of inevitably had to divide into different groupings. And one of the downsides has been that not nearly enough of the younger folk have been able to meet some of the older folk. Because when I first came to St. Ebbs, the biggest impact on me was to see people who've been Christians for 60, even 70, perhaps even 80 years, still delighting in Jesus and still marveling at his mercy. And every Friday night, terrible for my social life, great for my spiritual life, every Friday night, a group would pray. I was by way the youngest. And they'd pray fervently. And above all, they'd be praying for conversions. And they'd pray longing that people would know the God that they know because they were still utterly thrilled by the fact that Jesus was a merciful God who died for them. So I don't know what mood you're in. And it could be, looking around today, we think how amazing God is, all the things that he's doing for us and in us. And we're in danger of being a little complacent. And we think, of course, this will continue. And we need to remind that God is very, very big and we're very small. But I suspect for more of us, if we're honest, we kind of believe these things, but in a little bit of a private way. And we don't want to make it too public. We've almost forgotten that God saved us and he could save anyone. And we need a reminder that, yes, although we are small and very weak, and perhaps it's harder to live the Christian life than it used to, God is very, very great indeed. He's holy. He's the God who reigns. He's the God who's just. He's the God who's merciful. And just as the people in the exile needed to be reminded, God hasn't changed. And what he's done before, he can do again. So we need to be reminded, God hasn't changed. And what he's done throughout the 1,300 years of St. Ebb's existence, he can continue to do in the next year and beyond. Let's pray.
Loving Father, give us together a sense of your greatness. That we might exalt you, the Lord, our God, the merciful one. And have confidence to live publicly for you. And to share your glories with the world that they might also praise and worship you. For your name's sake.